You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of film seen in nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. It's Thursday, January 19th, 2017, and in this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing or about to open at Film Scene. Our lineup includes Anti-Birth, which plays at Film Scene this Saturday, January 21st at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll be discussing 20th Century Women, which opens at Film Scene tomorrow and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. Finally, we'll be discussing Elle, which opened at Film Scene last week and will also continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. Joining us in our third segment to discuss Elle is fellow Bijou member Sean Wu. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Spencer Williams, a cinema major at the University of Iowa. Welcome, Spencer. Hi. And we have Changmin Yu, a film studies grad student at Iowa. Welcome, Changmin. Glad to be back. And I'm Leah Vonderheide, a film studies grad student. Let's start with our first film, Anti-Birth. Spencer, perhaps you can share your thoughts with us before we begin our discussion. Yeah. In a small, unnamed Michigan town, one very reminiscent of modern-day Detroit, Lou, played by Natasha Lyonne, is having a very bad time. She's a hard-partying, bong-hitting mess with a plethora of symptoms, all of which point to pregnancy. The problem? She hasn't had sex in months. Sadie, Louis, Lou's best friend, tells her it's time to slow down regardless because being in denial about a baby doesn't make the baby disappear. Lou's immaculate conception is a bit different than your average pregnancy. Lou experiences psychedelic visions and excruciating bodily pains that can't be written off as mere nauseating baby kicks. Enter mysterious Lorna, who comes bearing gifts of wild conspiracies involving the government and aliens and crazy experiments. However, stranger things, this is not... Lou, constantly high or drunk, is not the most reliable protagonist, and Danny Perez's direction gives her perspective the visual uncertainty it deserves. For instance, in one vision, Lou is probed by dancing animals that look like coked-out Teletubbies from a Chuck E. Cheese knockoff. Not satisfied with mere mental madness, Anti-Birth also includes a handful of body horror shock scenes, which include the popping of the biggest blister ever known to mankind. Um, tonally, the film is all over the place, but I enjoyed Lou's erratic behavior and friendship with Chloe Savigny's Sadie. That is until things turn sour. The climax reminded me a bit of the Greasy Strangler and its excessive what the bleepness. I'm not sure I understood everything going on with the junkie subplot involving Sadie's drug dealer boyfriend, played by a sinister, though not really, Mark Webber. Um, This film feels like it's trying too hard at times to be the next cult classic, but even though the final product doesn't feel satisfying in its attempt to juggle all of its disasperate parts, I enjoyed what I saw with reservations. My fellow banters, what did you make of this film? I didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's super gross. I think body horror is the worst of the horrors. Um... And I don't think it's original to, like, make pregnancy seem like it's crazy and disgusting. Um, I didn't like it. Does this fall under the canon of birth control horrors that we were talking about? (laughs) I think this is a liberalization of that genre. Well, isn't birth control horror supposed to be, like, where the kids are terrifying? This is, like, pregnancy horror, essentially. Pregnancy horror. 
pre birth control. Post birth. Is it like abstinence? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know about this film. This film sometimes is very confusing as to what the film is trying to achieve. In the sense that、uh, most of the time, the audience didn't get what is happening in this filmic world. Like, okay, we know the protagonist is just like、uh, drinking all the time, partying all the time, but like,、um, but we don't get how、uh, her. Lifestyle is connected to this whole pregnancy drama in the film. So, like,、uh, I think、uh, for the first half of the film, I was very confused. I was like,、uh, I don't know where this is going, but、uh, let's wait and see. And the the end takes a very interesting and horrific turn that. I didn't mind as much because I think this is something that you have been waiting for for the entire film, right? So、uh, I sort of like it. Leah was waiting for for the entire. No,、film. and in fact, during the blister <laughs> popping scene, I was like, "Oh, it's not. It can't get worse than this." I don't know <laughs> why on earth I thought that was true.、Um, But yeah, I literally thought, oh, she popped that weird, gross blister, which I barely with、like、watched a with a knife, <laughs> and like certainly the body horror stuff is going to be over now. I don't. I'm. Why would you think that? <laughs> Because it was so gross. Like I just thought, oh, that's like as gross as things can get. I'm sure. I'm sure. I think this is like the counterpart to Under the Skin, because Under the Skin is all very dematerialized. And this film is all about that kind of corporeal sensations that you you are going to experience when you are seeing that blister. So, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a strength of the film, I will say, though, is just Natasha Lyonne all the way through.、Mm-hmm. Like, I actually, as much as I didn't like it because it was gross, like I did like. I thought she, her performance was actually really fantastic. Yeah, very、sure. very strong. Um, but while not explicitly stated, the setting of the film looks very similar to Detroit, which is Michigan, where the film takes place.、Um, what do we make of this recent trend of horror films using Detroit as like a setting for like these horrible things that happen to the body, or even like criminal activity? I'm thinking of like Don't Breathe, utilized like a similar setting this year. It follows featured some scenes in abandoned buildings and warehouses. Um, is there something like more political about the utilization of Detroit in horror that has been coming up in recent times?、Um, I just crazy. My guess would be like Detroit offers some sort of tax incentives for these all, all these different independent productions, right? So like people would go there to make films.、Uh, I don't I don't know how to、uh, extrapolate the political or allegorical dimension of this film just because. The locale seems very abstracted because, like most of the time, the protagonist is moving from one club to her place, which is like a truck kind of thing. Then, like we don't see any kind of、um, urban landscape in this film. I think, I, and I actually don't think it was supposed to take place in Detroit. I think it's more small town Michigan, like a ways away from Detroit. So there's maybe. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I got it. I got the impression that it's not actually in Detroit. It's small town. It's remote. It's where some of this criminal activity can take place under the radar、um, because people are not paying attention to kind of the rural poor outside of poor cities. <laughs> I mean, I do.、Uh, at one moment, feels like 
the film does have a political dimension in the sense that you do feel very strongly the stagnation that is suffused within the entire place or the film like uh you feel like there's nothing really happening so people are making up all these crazy conspiracy theories so i do see that kind of uh, stagnation going on throughout the entire film well that and the fact that it's um populated with veterans um oh, yeah. and they actually date that back to her own dad who was a vietnam vet who went crazy and now there's sort of vietnam veterans um kind of all over this small town who um, it seems like can't work, are suffering from various mental issues that are tied to their time um, serving in the military, and they're just sort of being overlooked. And I, I mean, I do think that that was like a common, you know, they're turning to um, black market drugs and et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. Yeah, speaking of sort of this army vet situation, there's one character played by Meg Tilly, um, Lorna, and she kind of appears seemingly like out of nowhere in this movie and doesn't really do much except like spout these crazy conspiracy theories. Um, I guess trying to get into like Lou's head or sort of like, I mean, it's kind of hard for Lou when she like lifts up her shirt and we sort of see the pregnant belly and it just does not look right at all. Um, but she seems to have walked into this. I was reading a lot of other reviews too, but they all were like, saying that she seemed to have walked into this movie by accident, it seems. Like, <laughs> she's somehow, she's, like, s- sleeping her way through her lines, and it's just like, why is why is Meg Tilly here? Um, <laughs> for me, I don't know. I really, I don't know. I think I liked her character a lot because, I don't know, it was just so unexpected, and you never really knew what was going to come out of her mouth next, like and, like, how even she would tie into sort of this end, which I don't necessarily think is all, like, clear or how that's cleared up her like relationship to this sort of program if there is one um but was this frustrating for you guys as viewers too I feel like this movie kind of hip hops around different plot points a lot but like never really comes together and ties them all together satisfyingly um did you hope that more of these like loose ends I guess would be tied together in the conclusion or did you just like not care at all I just kept thinking I wish this wasn't a horror film because there's a myth. Like I thought I wish it was just a thriller um, where Chloe Savini and Tasha Leone are kind of swept up in something a little bit bigger than themselves, a little seedy. Um, I think kind of the having PTSD connected to um, being in small towns and constantly living a kind of drug addled lifestyle where you start to not know what's real or not real about the present and past and or future would have all been very interesting to explore. I just didn't need any of the horror elements. <laughs> like, I thought that would have been an interesting film in and of itself. When I was watching this film, I just cannot help but think about Orphan Black all the time because I feel like this can be a spin-off of like one of the characters in Orphan Black, which is about the clones of Natasha Lyon throughout the entire series. Um, that said, uh, I don't know. I feel like conspiracy theory is just like one important major thematic element throughout this American sci-fi genre. And we see that a lot in Jeff Nichols, for example, and also a lot of contemporary sci-fi. So like, and you can see um, Lona's character as this um, tribute to 
a myth character, which is Cassandra, like the figure of an old woman as a medium who can intuit some kind of conspiracy going on. I know. I think I'm reading too much into this, but still. No, I agree. I wish it was like, yeah, sci-fi thriller. I'm in. Um, <laughs> and and, and it, yeah, I think in a lot of sci-fis, you need a conspiracy theorist at some point to almost validate the story. Kind of like Christmas films always need someone walking around trying to tell people there's no Santa to like validate the fact that there is a Santa in the film. So that's a weird comparison, <laughs> but you're welcome. <laughs> Um, so loose visions are terrifying. I'm thinking mostly of the creeptastic uh, mascot figures from the local fast food joint slash bowling alley, which I also think is like a great setting where you have this like I don't even know what to call them, just like these furry monsters, and like where kids would like have their birthday party at with a bowling alley where like everyone goes to like get drunk and like hang out at at the same time. And so there's like, I don't know, there's like this weird, I feel like those two things shouldn't be together, but for some reason it's just like so funny that they are put together. Um, But were there any parts in this film that genuinely sort of like unnerved you the most? Because the vision scene where like the creepy like furry monster just sort of is like caressing Natasha Leon's head and was like doing this like, there's like weird music in the background. I don't know, for me that was like, that like tripped me out a bit. Yes, that's pretty gross. (laughs) It's like a deformed Teletubby is giving her a vaginal ultrasound in her vision. Yeah, they like probe her, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I Uh, I like the Teletubbies just because I think uh, it is an interesting ripoff of, you know, David Lynch's like uh, huge rabbit dolls in Mm. Inland Empire or like some other films. Um, Other than that, I think... uh, this film is definitely trying too hard to be, again, the next cult classic, just because I think there are just too many um, irrelevant elements in this film that can use some editing, you know? Like, we don't need to see all the things like you think of in your brain. Yeah, it, it actually almost got slow, like too slow yeah. before the yeah. end. Um I saw a comparison. I wish I had come up with this because I think it makes a lot of sense to the Big Lebowski. Um, all oh, of yeah. these sort of bowling alley scenes, <laughs> the 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 character who is pregnant or trying to get pregnant um, or gets pregnant through kind of subterfuge. Like uh, um, anyway, I think that that would be an interesting <laughs> matchup of those two films. Double feature. All right. Yeah. Good, guys. Let's end there. (laughs) Uh, Again, Anti-Birth plays at Film Scene this Saturday, January 21st at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, check out bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss 20th Century Women. Check, check. Yo, we'd like to roll out a three days a week opportunity to you guys. Music. Campus Activities Board. Board, board, board. Campus Activities Board. First word, campus. Bringing students together. Good time. Second word, activities. Movies three nights a week. Comedians, road trips. Last word, board. Board. Uh, Wood. Nails. Fun time. Check Cab out on Facebook for all our events. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Our second film is 20th Century Women. Changmin, perhaps you can share your impressions of this film before we begin. Sure. 
20th century women tells the story of three women and two men in a glamorous punk rock inspired 1970s. Single mom Dorothea raises her boy Jamie in a big house they share with Abby and Willem. Jamie's friend Julie often sneaks into Jamie's、uh, Jamie's room to have a good and honest sleepover. There's no clear trajectory of the narrative. On the one hand, you might label this as a coming-of-age story that focuses less on the struggles of a protagonist, in this case Jamie, but more on the people who surround him, those who try to help him. Be a better man and integrate into society that should be informed by feminism, which becomes the film's recurring gag. Feminist jokes are the highlights throughout the entire film. In one scene, Abby, played by Greta Gerwig, begins repeating the word menstruation at a dinner party, forcing Jamie and other male guests to do the same. Then the occasion turns into Julie's vagina monologues. How she had her first period at a friend's place, how she had sex with a stranger, etc. With these feminist vignettes, Jamie doesn't seem like your usual grumpy adolescent. He appears to be sensitive, gentle, and kind. On the other hand, the film is also about gendered alienation. Dorothea, at the age of fifty-five, doesn't seem to understand how to raise her young boy anymore, or even to how to find a suitable object of desire. Abby, cured from cervical cancer, always has a weird feeling about her body, her internal estrangement. Julie recognizes that her friendship with Jamie would be ruined if she ever had sex with him. She knows too well sex for a woman looking for companionship is both intimate and alienating, a chaotic confusion most adolescents tend to ignore. I like this film, delicate and sweet. How do you feel about this, my fellow bangers? I wanted to give this movie like a hug. Like I really <laughs> enjoyed it.、Um, I like Mike Mills a lot. I thought his last film, Beginners, also sort of covered. I feel like same material in sense of like, I mean, like a character portrait of like a paternal figure. I mean, his last movie was about his late father, and this one's clearly inspired by his mother. And every you can just tell he loves every single character that he writes so much. Like every character has their moment, their sort of like histories.、Um, everything is so well drawn out between sort of, and also sort of like、um, generational divides too. He's really good with those.、Um, the scene, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, is when. Dorothea and the sort of the older man that's living with them, William. William, yeah, and they are trying to sort of connect to youth music、um, at the t- of the time. So they're like putting on these punk rock records, and they're trying to like get their groove on, and it's like not clicking for them in the same way that it's clicking for Jamie and Abby, who have grown up with this kind of music and with this sort of like rebellious nature.、Ah, I just, I really like, and the cinematography. It's go- it's a gorgeously lensed film.、Um, Yeah, everyone is really great, and yeah, I just I love it. I like it a lot. Yeah, I really enjoyed this <laughs> film too, and、um, it is true. I lo- I loved each character individually, and I guess I was struggling to f- to figure out a justification for calling this a comedy, as the Golden Globes did, but、mm-hmm. they're always doing weird stuff like that.、Um, but I it, I would say there is no villain. There is no like. Truly bad person in this movie. Like、mm-hmm. some people make mistakes and some people make selfish decisions, but ultimately they're not portrayed in a way that would make us、um, judge them harshly. Really, in any way, I felt.、Um, 
And I really liked that the characters made decisions or said things that were really true to themselves or true to their character without falling into some sort of um, stereotype or even just sort of narrative necessity. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought Dorothea in particular was a character that was really interesting. She would say things that I wasn't expecting her to say, and then I would realize, actually, that makes a lot of sense for her as this character, um, which is an int- I mean, that that's really hard for a film to pull off. Like usually to kind of follow a character's logic, you end up seeing really familiar characters <laughs> in movie <laughs> after movie, I guess. I don't know. All right. So I think, um, it can be established that we all like characters in this film, but I think, <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like the characters are more likable than the film. The film, doesn't do as much to me at least. So I, uh, what, why is that? Like, what would be, what would be the reason for this? Oh, I don't think I agree with that statement entirely. Okay, because this film is so much about women in the 20th century, and so it builds into its narrative. Really, um, it uses like lots of montages of um, found footage mm-hmm. um, from the 20s in the 50s, et cetera, to give you a feeling for who these people are and particularly women who considered themselves, um, like I think it was really important the way the film was put together to understand Dorothea as a character because her understanding of feminism is so different from what's happening in the 70s and Mm -hmm. I thought that that wasn't, like I don't think I would have understood her character without the way the film was constructed formally. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And like beginners too use sort of that montage to sort of, I mean, clearly like, I guess, draw a line between like different characters and from different generations and sort of their worldviews and their understanding of the times that they're living in and also, I guess, the times that their parents grew up in and sort of how they're different. And so all of these little lines are drawn. And I don't know, I just think when it comes down to sort of two characters having a conversation after those like um, montages happen, like you, there's such a richer understanding of who these people are and sort of like why they're not connecting in the way that they want to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that those like montages add to sort of those tensions. It made me question like <laughs> the notion of Dorothea would have been a different person if she had been born at a different time. Yeah. Because, and and I think that all kind of ties into this idea of she makes decisions or says things that I wasn't expecting. And then I would realize, well, because she's 55 in 1979. Like, of course she doesn't understand our bodies ourselves. Like, she just, her revolution was getting a job, you know? Like, so it's, you know, as much as she's this kind of modern woman, she's also finding herself kind of outdated and really genuinely can't understand the uh, the younger women in the film. Really? I, I know. I feel like, uh, for me, there's I, I do think like uh, the use of the intermedia materials in this film is very effective to give us the backstory of Dorothea. Uh, but at the same time, um, I think it is lacking something, like something that I cannot really describe now. Like, I, I feel like... Um, I don't know if we need all these backstories from all these characters, for example. Uh, I think that sort of distracts me a little bit because uh, I think for uh, other characters, their backstories um, are not as coherent as Dorothea's, for example, right? 
Well, for well, me. Yeah, yeah, they're not. But I, I mean, I think that's a, that's generally okay or was okay for me since she's such a central figure in the story. And she's also just lived a lot longer than most of the other characters have too. So she's had sort of time to cultivate experiences, I feel, that the other characters are sort of just now dipping their toes into. And also, uh, uh, there's this idea in the film that if you read something, it is going to change your mind, right? So, like, <laughs> right? So, like, uh, when Jamie uh, reads all these classical, canonical feminist texts, like, uh, he's actually doing something, like, uh, trying to uh, realize the feminist vision in practical ways, which is very, to me, very utopian. But I think that's the. Uh, sweet spot of the film in the sense that you you actually see a person changing. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think when you're 15 and you read something, it can totally change your opinion. I mean, you're just so ripe for new radical ideas. What's particularly interesting about that, though, is that the, so those books came from um, the Greta Gerwig character mm-hmm. who's older and really came of age um, with that kind, that sense of that sense of feminism, and already we're seeing that Abby, who's only I think she's also supposed to be fifteen, maybe yeah. maybe a couple years older, she, those ideas already don't completely gel with her mm-hmm. either. She's mm-hmm. already starting to show signs of being a kind of different generation of women who are going to come of age um, in the eighties, and that's a different type of understanding of yourself as a woman as well. So I felt like there was a lot of subtlety in the mm-hmm. way that all the women were interacting. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jamie was just, yeah, he was just reading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> yeah. He reads a lot in this film. Okay. So, uh, there are many flashbacks and flash forwards in this film telling the audience, the backstories and the eventual outcome of each character, a little bit like the ending of HBO's six feet under. Do you like this kind of complex storytelling? Um, I think maybe that might have been sort of like the character reveals, I mean, of their like futures might have been the one part of the film that I still, I don't know how I feel about it necessarily because I don't think like in the moments that we see these characters interacting with each other that their futures really make a difference, you know, or like I feel maybe not make a difference, but, like, I feel like we know I'm perfectly fine just being with the characters as they are, like, in that moment, and it's sort of, like, whatever happens to them afterwards is sort of, like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Come back to me. I'm trying to think. (laughs) I actually kind of like the idea that in in a film, if you're going to use a flashback, which is already a cinematic technique, that maybe you owe it to your audience to move forward. Because you've already decided you're not going to live in that particular moment all on its own. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of nice to say, like, well, time in film has already always already happened. You know, like, Mm -hmm. it's so why not flash forward? If you're not just going to do, if you're going to flash back, maybe you should flash forward as well. I think maybe what sort of kind of threw me was sort of these characters suddenly having this prophetic knowledge of their own futures and then vocalizing those futures themselves, like knowing that suddenly knowing these things were going to happen to them in their own voices. Mm-hmm. That maybe might have taken me out. I don't know if, like, maybe if there was sort of like an all-seeing narrated voice or something, sort of giving details. I don't know. There was something about this idea that, oh, like, I know 
myself, like how every point in my life now is going to turn out. I don't know. Something about that seemed kind of sci-fi to me that like didn't, I couldn't fit. I like, it wouldn't like click for me. Um, my feeling is that I think, um, flash forward always closes off some possibilities. So, um, it's, it is as if the film is telling you that all these characters are going to be all right. Even they get sick, even they have some sort of accident, it is going to be fine. So I don't, because this is such a poignant portrait of all these different women and men. So I don't like the fact that they try to, um, uh, sort of, frame all these different characters um, in a very narrative sense and it gives you their their future, which is something I think um, too utopian, yes, and too good for me. Hmm. I don't know. I, 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 all I feel like I liked it. I like thinking about time in that way. I like thinking about the kind of fullness of a character. If it's fiction, then I think you get to do that. I mean, real life is the possibility and the unknowing. So when we make movies or art, <laughs> let's 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 tell the whole story. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I think I like that device more. And I don't know. I think it works better for me, just like in books, where there's more time to sort of flesh out these futures instead of like having just like a paragraph of like and then this is going to happen this is going to happen okay next one boom and then it's just like you don't really get to sit with those futures because mm-hmm. it's like one after the other mm-hmm. and so then you're stuck with like a bunch of different futures and you're trying to sort of like I mean for me I was sort of trying to be like okay how might that future like have affected like this person and like we never I feel like I didn't get enough time to sort of sit with sort of the gravitas of like particular futures that turned out to be sadder than others um because they were all handed to me just like on one plate i don't know all right i think that's fair and i certainly wouldn't want every <laughs> film to do it all the time i just didn't have a problem with it in this in this particular film um okay well we have to wrap up there uh, again 20th century women opens at film scene tomorrow and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week for a complete list of showtimes check out ic film scene Before we move on to our third film, let's check on the weather. Tonight, 50% chance of showers in Iowa City. It's currently 35 degrees. Tomorrow, a high of 45 degrees with fog and a 20% chance of showers. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Our final film is Elle, and joining us to discuss Elle is fellow Bijou member Sean Wu. Welcome, Sean. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. All right, so Elle opens with a very disturbing scene in which the film's main character, Michelle, played by Isabelle Huppert, is raped in her home by an intruder wearing a ski mask. The scene is shocking and violent and ends as suddenly as it begins. After the attack, Michelle, a successful businesswoman woman who owns a video game company with her best friend, proceeds to go about her day almost as if the assault never happened. She doesn't call the police, she doesn't go immediately to the hospital, and she doesn't tell anyone what happened, including her adult son, Vincent, who comes over for dinner that same evening. 
Michelle's unexpected response to the attack leads viewers into that despicable realm of doubt that unfortunately and absolutely unfairly undermines so many sexual assault victims. That is, the unfolding of the narrative prompts viewers to question the events of the first scene. Was it really a rape? Was it actually consensual? Is the violent nature of the video games that Michelle designs in some way related to the incident or even to her sex life in general? Questions essentially reminiscent of a regressive patriarchal society. However, the film goes on to provide lots of seemingly satisfying plot twists and reveals. Yet, after each new revelation, only more morally uncomfortable questions emerge to confront and disorient moviegoers. Or maybe that's just how I felt. My fellow banterers, what did you make of this film? Did you enjoy it? Were you as uncomfortable as I was? And is there any way to properly discuss this film without spoiling it? Sean, let's start with you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to say I enjoyed it because the subject matter is so challenging and so disorienting, but the the movie is very, very good. It's in my top 10 of 2016. And... Uh, on the question of like discomfort, I gotta say I was watching the movie in a, on a screener on my laptop, and I was in my bed, so I was actually very comfortable. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but the subject matter is iconic, very uncomfortable. Is very uncomfortable, and I could understand some viewers being turned off by the movie, like within the first scene. It's <clears throat> unrelenting. And I think it is possible to discuss the film without spoiling it. I went in knowing that it was just Isabelle Huppert being amazing and uh, the movie involving rape. And there's so much more to it than just that. And all I can, I just recommend uh, viewers see this movie and have an opinion on it because there's no way you can watch this movie and not have an opinion on it afterwards. Okay, let's start with a description. I would call this uh, Piano Teacher Light. <laughs> so I never actually saw The Piano Teacher, but I know she's in it. I and this film reminds me of Michael Hanukkah just generally. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, it made me curious to want to see The Piano Teacher, which I've never super wanted to see before, just to be like, is this super, is related to it? Yeah, I think very much <laughs> so. It is definitely a ripoff. Like, mm-hmm. And also... Uh, Isabelle Hubert always has that kind of neurotic quality, right? And sh- and she's always masochistic. I, I don't know. I-, I don't want to like put that label on her too easily, but she tends to play uh, this kind of character uh, in most of her films. So I think in that sense, like you go into the film, I think... Uh, uh, Beethoven wants to complicate the entire narrative of rape. I think uh, you are absolutely right that uh, this film could have some very uh, pernicious effect in how we discuss rape. But also, maybe uh, the film wants to use like uh, Isabelle Hubert as an entryway to discuss all this emotional intricacy and complexity that um a woman would have after a traumatic experience right so like in that sense i do like the film i just think we need to be careful when we are discussing it yeah um i don't know i'm still thinking about the movie even after having seen it and i feel like this was one of those film going experiences where 
as I was watching the film, I was also sort of, how do I say this without sounding just like, oh God, so pretentious. But like, I, I don't know. I feel like I had to check myself at the same time as I was watching it. Like I had to be very mindful of myself as a viewer in the sense that there were moments where I was so immersed in what was happening in the film and I was enjoying it so much because there are these like really wickedly comedic moments Mm -hmm. that like I was just, I found myself like grinning and I was like, why am I like, am I allowed to be grinning? Like, this is horrible though. Like Mm -hmm. I shouldn't feel this way about this. Like if this happened in front of me, I would be horrified. There would be something so different about it about my reactions. I think Um, (laughs) like, you know, and like, there's just like, I don't know. There was, there were part, I left the film just feeling so morally conflicted with myself as just like a person. <laughs> Cause I was like, I mean, it starts, I mean, the film jumps around tonally so much that it's sort of hard to be like when it starts and like the first scene is the rape. You're like, oh my God, this is horrible. Like, this is awful. Oh my goodness. Like, you're scared. And then it slowly starts to become there. And then all of these little funny moments start to be thrown in and then you kind of get comfortable and then something horrible again happens. But I don't know. I feel like because these funny things happened before it now, I feel like, okay, like that happened, but I am anticipating like these more funny moments. So I'm not as disturbed as I was the first time that it happened. And I, I think there's something so wrong about that for some reason. Like I, every time it happens, like I should be horrified or I feel like that's how I should feel. So I don't, like, I can't, I don't, I'm so, because I think on a filmmaking level and on, like, a performance level, like you said, I do, I mean, this is, she's basically giving the same performance that she gave in The Piano Teacher, (laughs) I guess, to, like, a lesser extent, but, like, the same sort of intensity and, like, coldness is there, and, I mean, in the script, I mean, she gets to chew on a lot of really great lines and, like, moments that are, like, really genuinely funny, especially, like, her relationship with her son mm-hmm. and sort of his new baby that, like, you know, it's, like, there are these, like, really funny moments with her family. And then when we sort of, when, like, new leaves are turned and we get more and more information, it's sort of, like, about different people that come and go in her life. I don't know, it feels... And then her job as, like, the video game, like, head person. And I wasn't sure how to connect all of these different people. And I wasn't sure how... I don't know. I'm, like, I... No, I agree. I think that this movie was extremely effective (laughs) in playing with its spectators. It's so aware of how we are perceiving and trying to understand the story visually and almost um, haptically... Like, it's just really, um, it's a real mind game, I think, that Verhoeven is um, interested in. Um, I do want to say that Isabelle Hubert won the Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a Motion Picture, beating out both Natalie Portman and Amy Adams, who had been more favored to win. Um, it sounds like there's a, a bit of a consensus in the room that Hubert um, has played this type of character before. Does that mean she's she is or isn't deserving of such a claim? Uh-huh. Um I think she, regardless of like her past performances, she's doing some fantastic work in L. And I'm glad uh, Chong Min brought up the piano teacher because I was reminded a lot of her work in the piano teacher and also uh, Claude Chabrol's La Ceremonie. That oh yeah, <laughs> kind of another masochist uh, performance here. I think there's. Uh, a lot that factors into Huppert's performance that uh, 
gave it the Golden Globe, like such as her just history with uh, movies. She's been uh, in the movie business for such a long time, and maybe the Globe voters realize like Portman's won before, Adams has won before, like within this decade. So it's nice. I was really happy actually to see the Hollywood foreign press like reward a foreign film for a performance because I don't think uh, um, American audiences are seeing enough foreign cinema. So anything to broaden some horizons to some viewers is worthy of acclaim in my opinion. Well, uh, my encounter with Ubed has been long <laughs> and convoluted. So, like, I, I, I first saw her in The Piano Teacher. So, like, I have that stereotype throughout. <laughs> then I went back to see some of her earlier films, like the films she made in the 1970s. Oh, my gosh, she's so pristine. She's just, like, virgin-like in, I think, Heaven's Gate. Uh, she's just, like, in this kind of Western landscape running around naked. I was like, oh, my God, this is a different kind of actress that I'm seeing now. So uh, I, I think Ubek is... I, I don't know uh, if... She, her performance is better than Amy Adams or like uh, Natalie Pullman's, but I think she hits uh, uh, on a lot of right notes. Like she so she's so distinctly French. She has that kind of coldness, that kind of condescending attitude, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can imagine she's talking about video games while quoting French philosophers, for example. <laughs> and also, like you can also see that how. Um, a, diff, a, a, a very, um, I don't know, specific kind of French acting that is brought into this film. Like, of course, I think uh, Verhoeven was very consciously uh, doing that just because uh, in one scene, we actually see her uh, see a film on a screen, which is uh, played by Juliette Binoche, certified copy. So, like, I think, like, there's also that kind of contention between, like, the two most famous actresses in French cinema here. So, I, I don't know. I feel like uh, in terms of uh, different dimensions of acting, Yubei truly um, embodies a certain kind of excellence here. So, I would like, I, I mean, I, I think I like it better than Amy Adams' performance in Arrival, for example, just because I think there's this variation of performance. Yeah, I think she also does a lot of really physical work in this movie, too, that, like... I mean, she wears her scarves really well. She really oh, does. Yes. She's she honestly impeccable. But there's, I don't know, I've still, I go back and forth because I feel like she's an amazing actress, and I don't know if I could imagine any other actress in a part like this and I think she does this kind of part so well that maybe the reason we keep thinking of the piano teacher performance is because like literally no one else can I feel does this performance as well as Isabel Hooper so people are going to keep casting her in this like particular like ice queen kind of like unflappable like I just feel like if any other actress was in this part there would be lines that they would just try so hard to like just chew and suck like every single drop of like and Isabel kind of just says the line and for some reason it just feels so much more real and so much more like oh like the coldness and the detachment from sort of like the way that she sort of fills the shoes of this character I feel like it's it does it doesn't feel like a performance and maybe that's like 
Well, that's what kind of worried me. Yeah, exactly. I saw her. I mean, my biggest association with her is white material. Oh, white material. And it's the same. I mean, it's like that woman flew out of Africa and landed (laughs) in that apartment and just kept living her life and started making video games. Like, it was the same person. So I was like, is she actually just a terrifying human being somehow? And I'll just, like, watch interviews with her, too, and it just feels like... Someone was, someone asked her like oh like do you like carry sort of like the traumas of your characters with you after the shoots over and she's just like nah it's just like a job nah. and I'm like <laughs> oh my goodness like there's something she's just like the most unflappable human and oh. I don't a part of me is like really horrified and like really scared of her like if I ran into her on the street I would like run away because I'm so scared of Isabel Hooper but I think, I'm mesmerized yeah I think she's just like the uh, she's just a nature actress, right? So, like, there's this consistency to her acting through. I think, like, uh, we did discuss Laurel and Bombs, right? And she plays, like, a similar character in that film. Like, she's the wartime photographer. So, like, I just feel like, uh, uh, yes, she acts very well, but maybe also because, like, uh, she has been trained for such a long time with the same type of character again and again. So, like, she's just, like, the epitome of that kind of acting. All right, let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue our discussion of Elle with Sean Wu. Support for KRUI is provided by Little Village. Little Village is Iowa City's independent, community-supported news and culture publication. Little Village's event calendar connects readers with critical cultural opportunities. Through journalism, essays, and events, Little Village works to improve our community according to core values, affordability and access, economic and labor justice, environmental sustainability, racial justice, gender equity, quality health care, quality education, and critical culture. Little Village can be found in print editions at local businesses in Iowa City as well as online at littlevillagemag.com. Welcome back to BG Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films, playing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing Elle with Sean Wu. Um, This has kind of come up a little bit already, but I want to talk specifically about the cat in this film because um, (laughs) the cat is one of the things that's providing oddly timed comic relief. Um, Why do you think this element of the film is included? I think the cat is a little bit of a device. Like the we the first shot of the movie is the cat. So it's uh at the beginning like you you kind of think the cat would be in the movie more as like our way of like viewing Michelle's life, but the cat's not in the movie that much despite what the poster would like lead you to believe. I think the cat is uh functions in its symbolism in two ways. One would be like uh, representative of like security in Michelle's apartment that she's not alone. She always has this cat as company, but also this cat is a black cat, and I'm assuming this black cat is symbolic of misfortune because it's like intentionally a black cat, not like a white dog or a like a gray hamster. It's a black cat. <laughs> a gray <laughs> hamster. It's not a <laughs> Well, uh, I saw another film this break, uh, Mia Henson Loves Things to Come. So it is also with Isabelle Hubert. And in that film, she also has a cat, uh, which uh, she inherited from her mom, I think. Uh, I think cat seems to have some 
affinity with Isabelle Hubert because she has that kind of uh, capriciousness or like uh, spontaneity. Like the cat just goes into a ring of the frame and leaves the frame. Uh, it doesn't care anything, right? <laughs> so like, I think that that is sort of the unpredictability of uh, Isabelle Hubert's character in this entire film. So I think that adds to uh, the whole performance. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I feel like Isabel Hooper is basically a cat in the sense that she like gets what she needs from you and then you're dead to her for like until she needs something from you again. And like this movie, I feel like kind of <clears throat> her character definitely like has that kind of I feel that mentality of detachment, but like she's also able to get information from people that she wants to get and she gets it with like such ease it feels. Like, she's so good at manipulating people, and she's so good at, like, just, like, walking into a room and, like, being a presence in the room. And, like, you know that she, like, is the smartest person in that room, and she doesn't even need to tell you. She'll just, like, go. She'll just, like, get the thing and then, like, leave, and you won't, like... And, like, everyone kind of is just, like, wait, what what just happened? You know, it's, like, she... She's, like... I don't know. I have... I feel like I have a cat similar to the one in this movie where, like, if I was being, like, just, like, attacked, like, the cat wouldn't, no call, no alarm. Would <laughs> like, it would just stare kind of like the cat does. And, like, when she sees, like, misfortune happening to others, she kind of, like, has the same attitude. Like, she doesn't go and help, per se. She just, like, observes and kind of, like, keeps, like... I don't know, like, has a smirk on her face and, like, sort of keeps it to herself. But, like, you know she's, like, silently judging you. That's interesting because, I mean, her detachment throughout the film at one point is suggested as like a kind of psychopathy, psychopathy? No, psychopathy. Yeah. Okay. Um, But I guess, yeah, the other way to think about it is a sort of like cat-like or just sort of a full reliance on animal instincts that aren't Uh necessarily um, burdened by emotion um, the way that you would expect them to be. Um, but I really, that's, I really just read the cat as like these odd moments that constantly were timed with comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, even the way that the cat is the first um, shot of the film is like a funny, it's funny until you fully grasp what's happening in the scene. Um, and then there's a lot of other moments that happen with the cat that just seem funny um, and oddly timed with everything else that's going on. Um, and then I wondered, uh, there's, I'm assuming we've all seen Manchester by the Sea, right? Yes. So there's a lot of moments um, in that film that don't involve a cat, but they have like a sort of unexpected observational comedy to them in what is otherwise a really dark and painful film. I don't know if other people picked up on that or felt like there was a similar effect happening. Am I... You're not wrong. I totally uh, understand this use of a comic element in both movies because I feel both movies are really strive to be grounded in realism and of course there's like ups and downs in life and the comedy functions as kind of like the ups and I want to bring up another movie uh, Inuritu's 2010 Spanish movie Beautiful which mm-hmm. is just relentlessly dark and the movie is worse for it because there's no comedy and there's no like breath from just things get worse and worse and worse and it's just you you got. I think for a lot of film, like regardless of how dark it is, you have to enjoy watching it, or you have to be engaged with something. And the comedy functions as uh, a way to be invested in the movie even more. 
I think Verhoeven's signature is that kind of dark humor, right? I I, I think so. Like from Showgirl to Star uh, Starship Troopers, yes, mm-hmm. and and other films. So like I think those are the moments like he's trying to wink at you, like to to n- not to take. Uh, the things that are happening in the film too seriously. So uh, I think like the uh, the weird feeling like we have toward the film uh, is exactly because like um, the director keeps a very delicate balance between alienation and identification. Like mm-hmm. we are not sure like uh, whether or not we should totally sympathize with Isabel Ubeck, which definitely should, but like the narrative strategy doesn't allow us to do so, right? So uh, I think comedy, uh, comedic elements um, sort of, um, I would say, strengthen the whole weird confusion of our feeling toward the film. Um, I'm still trying to find a moment in Manchester by the Sea that I thought was funny. I don't know. Like it's, I, it's like little observational things, like when they can't get the car door open or when they like literally in one of the saddest scenes when they're trying to put Michelle Williams into an ambulance, they like can't get the stretcher to work. And it's not like you're laughing. It's like just these like drawn out moments of observations about things not working properly or like... I realize it's not the same thing as what I think it's different than what Verhoeven is doing. I think you're right, Changmin, that for Verhoeven, it's like a wink to the spectator. Mm -hmm. And I felt like in Manchester by the Sea, though, there was like a desire to want to make sure that the real life of tragedy is as real as it could be. So things don't always look right or work right, even in the midst of deep, dark drama. But I don't know. That's I don't know. I, just, I just didn't read those moments as comic. I read those as just like utterly cringy mm. and like oh, God. but like of course that would happen. I don't know. I think the funniest part of Manchester by the Sea is like we're expected to believe that this kid has two girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> He's a uh. savage. All right, let's talk a little bit more about Paul Verhoeven, who has directed an amazing array of films, including RoboCop in '87, Total Recall in 1990. Uh, Basic Instinct in 92, Showgirls 95, and Starship Troopers 97. How does L fit into this corpus exactly? Uh, I think one thing we can talk about with regard to L is uh, the conflict, a conflicting feeling we, we have toward his seemingly feminist film, like Showgirls, right? Like, oh, it's like, okay. Uh, women are trying to show their agency, but in a very exploitative capitalist society trying to sell their bodies, I'm not sure that is the feminist vision we want. So like, I think uh, there's always that tension going on throughout his career, right? I think that's fair. I think uh, his movies are all uh, collectively tied by their explicit nature and in a way, Verhoeven's like maximizing film as a visual medium for storytelling. Because it's like I'm reading these list of movies and I'm thinking none of these could work as like books, really. Like, in the, as the way Verhoeven made them, like they're distinctly his movies. And you kind of like think about the the move the movies are all rated R, and then they have this extremely long description of why, and like that's classic Verhoeven because there's just so much. Like, there's his violence is like much thicker than like uh, most other directors' treatment of violence, and same with like sexuality. Is Elf based on a book? It, it, is, it, it is, is. Yeah, actually, yeah. Is I think like the interesting thing about Verhoeven is that he, 
uh, he can make successful adaptations. Like uh, Starship Troopers adapted from like a sci-fi classic written by Robert Heinlein. Mm. So like, um, I think uh, Total Recall is another adaptation from uh, a show story or whatever. So I think uh, um, it's not it's not like uh, for example. <clears throat> Uh, and Lee's new film is supposed to be a failure. Uh, so I think like, um, I don't know, these transnational directors uh, seem to be better at, at this kind of transposition of literary materials into visual terms. Are you, wait, were you just saying Ang Lee's yeah, um, but, but like, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk? Yes, but like most of Ang Lee's adaptations are critically acclaimed, right? So like Life Life of Pi, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, Pride and Prejudice, Leah's Favorite. No, no, uh, no, Sense and Sensibility. Oh, Sense and Sensibility. Get so, it right, yeah. get it right. Sense and Sensibility. <laughs> so I don't know. In uh, Ang Lee's defense, though, I wasn't a big fan of the Billy Lynn book. I didn't think it was very good. The Whoa, only, that's the first time I've heard that. The <laughs> only Paul Verhoeven films I've seen are Robocop and Total Recall, so I don't know how Elle fits into that corpus. How have <laughs> um, you never seen Showgirls? We've shown that. I think I am either was sick that weekend or <laughs> I don't know. It was Showgirls NC-17. Is yeah, that? and that was a big deal, too, because that's so rare. I read like a four-star review of Showgirls on like Slate Magazine or something, and now I do want to see it, it's gotten a huge reappraisal like since it's come out. It's awful, but I can't. I want to see it, especially after seeing L. Um, so I associate psychosexual thrillers with the '90s. Um, do we think this genre is making a comeback? I think every time a good like move, a good genre movie comes out, like the question is like, is this going to make a comeback? And that's really hard to say. Like for example, La La Land's come out. Like, do we expect a musical comeback? It's Hard to say. Like, uh, Elle's not very mainstream, though, so I don't think it will like influence. Uh, there won't be an increase of psych- psychosexual thrillers because of Elle. I just think like, hopefully, there will be an like if more psychosexual thrillers are made, though, like Elle will maybe be a foundation because it's gotten so much attention. It's hard to say if this will like be the beginning of a. Like the 2020s is a wave of psychosexual thrillers again. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what other psychosexual thrillers are there that have come out in recent times? Like maybe Fifty Shades, does that count? Yeah, that would count. I'll Um, count it. I'll give it, yeah, for sure. That's it. That, no. Cool. Double feature. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up there, guys. Again, L opened at Film Scene last week, and we'll also continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. For a complete list of showtimes, check out icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and their website, icfilmscene.org, to find this and past episodes of Bijou Banter. Please check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. All of our episodes are also available on iTunes. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Spencer, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Changmin, it's a pleasure as always. Likewise. Sean, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.